the early monastic movement was a, a mixture of um, flight from the world, uh, flight from the establishment aspect of the church, and, and looking for a more radical expression of what the faith meant. I mean, I guess you've painted a picture where um, often a religious order is in a sort of healthy dialogue and a mutually enriching thing with, uh, mm -hmm. with hierarchical parts of the church. Uh, many people are looking for questions of how am I a Christian, a Christian person, or someone who adopts this posture or this way without it being totally dictated by mm -hmm. my interactions with the building I go to on a Sunday. How does it permeate life? How does it decentralise a bit from the oversight and authority maybe that happens with that building that I go to on a Sunday? You're listening to Common Era, a podcast about spirituality in an age of change. For our first season, we're hosting a conversation between author and musician David Benjamin Blower and Nicholas Postlethwaite, a Catholic priest from The Passionists. In this episode, David and Nicholas talk about monks, monastic orders and rules of life. The last few years have seen a surge of interest in monasticism, rules, liturgies and all kinds of orthodox practices in many unexpected circles. At the same time, the daily life of Catholic orders are little known to outsiders. What are monastic orders and what's behind the renewed appeal? David and Nicholas talk about the history behind orders, the rise of new monasticism and the tensions between hierarchy and autonomy that lie behind the whole concept. So when I think about the idea of a religious order, my mind goes to all sorts of quite mythical places. It's quite a distant and romanticised idea. I've never been in circles where that's a normal thing. But, you know, my mind goes to like the characters in the Indiana Jones films who are part of a secret order who are sworn to protect this or that holy relic. So from, <laughs> from the Protestant world, it has this kind of air of mystery. I suppose it's not centred on a building that you go to on a Sunday, is it? It's this slightly elusive network who have a shared rule and language amongst themselves. That said, I don't really know what one is. Could you just paint the picture of, of religious orders in the Catholic tradition? Where did they begin and you know, what shape do they take? Okay. It's probably developed within the Catholic tradition. Going back to some of the things we've touched on before, a need for belonging, a need for family, a need for, for sharing. And I think in, in, the, in the very early church, there was a feeling that, that as Christianity began to become a more established position after Constantine, and it became part of the, 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 the political as well as the religious sort of framework, there was obviously movements developed that some people said this is this is selling our selling us down the line. We need something more radical, and the the early monastic movement was really a move from out of the cities into the desert. So you'd have like the desert fathers and the desert mothers. So you'd get a holy man or a holy woman who would, who would find some sort of cave or set herself up, but then people would begin to go to visit them. So you'd get communities joining around them. So the, the very early stages of the monastic movement was, was, was a, a mixture of um, flight from the world, flight from the establishment aspect of the church, and, and looking for a more radical expression of what the faith meant. 
And that developed then in the centuries in many different ways with men and women. St. Benedict was one of the, the key figures in the whole monastic movement. The Benedictine order is, is one of the oldest. He, he sort of started that particular sort of framework and, and the founder would usually begin to articulate a rule, a constitution that would, that would sort of regulate how the community developed. And they developed a lot depending on the culture that where they were in terms of how they, how they would survive, how they would, would they depend on, on money coming in as gifts from the rest of the church, or would they have, have some sort of a way of earning money? So, for instance, in, in, in the build-up to the, the Reformation in this country, a lot of the monasteries had, in fact, become um, very, very strong economic as well as political focus for how the country held together. They, they would be big landowners, and they would also be big employers. A lot of the sheep industry in, in, in the medieval England would, would have been the local monasteries that would have started that. Our own particular order came in the 18th century, so it was a, it was a later development. It was Italian in its origins, and the essence of the spirituality was wanted a monastic context in which there would be contemplation, contemplation and prayer, and the companions, the passionists, the monks would live in that sort of isolated place. But it was also, it was a mixture with the passionists, because rather than becoming a totally isolated, as, as say the Cistercians and some of the Trappists and some of the other orders are, where they remain simply in their monasteries, we passionists saw ourselves as, as combining the active and the passive. So you would be living in a situation that was quite isolated. We would be following a monastic rule, so there'd be prayers at set times during the night and day. I mean, when I joined, we used to get up at two o'clock in the morning for the first set of prayers and back to bed at three, up again at six. And each part of the day was punctuated by everybody coming together for those prayer sessions. However, we also had the tradition that we would go out at the request of the local church to conduct what we called a mission, which would be two or three of the men would go to a parish at the invitation of the local parish and would conduct a series of sermons, devotions, prayers, would visit the people with, with a view to encouraging them in terms of their, where their faith was. So we, we, we sort of straddled um, both the monastic, the strict monastic isolated, and the more outward-going Jesuit, for instance, approach. Now, there are lots of variations within that. There are lots of variation between men and women, and, but that's basically where the idea of a religious order came from. And I suppose it's, it goes back to our particular tradition. Because we live in this church that aspires to be universal and is quite structured, to have a bit of freedom as a family to develop in your own particular way is something you know, worth promoting. There are two kinds of priests, for instance. I belong to the priests who would describe themselves as religious, belonging to a religious order, whereas a secular priest would belong to a diocese. So a diocese, say, for instance, the Liverpool Archdiocese, would be under the archbishop in Liverpool. I've worked in Liverpool, but I've worked there as a passionist. So there's a sort of a relationship where I obviously need to be in good standing with the, with the archbishop, but he doesn't have a direct control over what I do or where I am. So there's a, there's a freedom within you know, certain limits as to how we develop our own particular sort of way forward. So for instance, in Birmingham here, Martin and John, till he died, chose to go and live in Spark Hill and to share their house with asylum seekers 
and that was their way of sort of walking alongside people. They would have informed the local archbishop so that he knew they were there. It was with his sort of blessing, as it were, but independently. So that's part of the general background of where a religious order comes from. And it's where that, is, that model is, is under pressure, not just with the Passionists, but, but across, the, across the, the field, because that way of, of actually working and living, both for men and women, is not necessarily the way that people today would want to actually do it. So there's, there's big changes in terms of how the structure and development of religious life is, is, is going. I'm just imagining an alternative history of the world where there's a Catholic order called the Lutherans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it didn't happen quite like that. I'm beginning to become aware that the idea of a, a religious order and a rule of life or monasticism in some form or another has sort of become attractive and interesting to people beyond Catholic circles. And I think partly it might be to do with that inherent decentralising Mm -hmm. energy that you mentioned in connection with the, the Desert Fathers in early Christian history. I don't know if that decentralising energy is always necessarily a part of why religious orders begin, but I think people are looking for questions of, well, how am I a Christian, a Christian person, or someone who adopts this posture or this way? How do I do that without it being totally dictated by mm -hmm. my interactions with the building I go to on a Sunday? How does it permeate life? How does it decentralise a bit from the oversight and authority maybe that happens with that building that I go to on a Sunday? I mean, I guess you've painted a picture where um, often a religious order is in a sort of healthy dialogue and a mutually enriching thing with, mm -hmm. uh, with hierarchical parts of the church. I guess obviously my mind goes to uh, new monasticism. I don't know how in touch with that kind of movement you've been. It's an ecumenical kind of thing that's drawing on all kinds of spiritualities. But I suppose well, it doesn't have a rule of life. It has liturgies, I suppose, and principles. Um, but something that's a bit less dependent on the structures that have been centred really on a building that you go to on a Sunday. Yes, I, I think that's, that's true. And I think there's many examples of where that, that overlap or the liminality, to use another word that, that you've, you've mentioned before, David, um, is... A, an enrichment at the moment. I mean, paradoxically, I don't know whether you're aware, but the religious orders have often been a prophetic voice, both condemning and encouraging the larger church population. So there's lots of examples from the history of monasticism where, where they've stood out and been a prophetic voice, condemnation of the way that church has been led. And there's, there's always an overlap. I mean, for instance, with the present Pope, are you aware that he's a Jesuit? So, in other words, he joined and, and was a Jesuit in Argentina and then has eventually been asked to become Pope. And then he's taken the name Francis because the Franciscans, called after St. Francis, was very much sort of part of his own sort of spirituality in terms of where he is, in terms of the ecological thing. So you can see actually embodied in the, in the present Pope some of those monastic spiritual sort of traditions swimming around in terms of how he operates. And I think what happens on a personal level can be replicated, as you've already indicated, with, with many groups. And, and I suppose it's, it's how do we then organise? How do, how do we come together? So, for instance, going back to the little example I gave you, which we call the vestibule, we're an ecumenical group. Not everybody in it is, is a Catholic. Some people don't go to church at all. 
there's a commitment to how we share our lives each week and how we then have a look at perhaps what the scriptures are showing, uh, the scripture readings for that particular Sunday. And there's also a commitment to saying, well, how do we help Zakir and Sultana, who are the two asylum seekers that were presently, the vestibule is supporting it, in terms of how they are given a space to live. So that there's, there's the coming together of the, the different aspects of, of, of life. And perhaps, sort of conscious of the way you were suggesting the question, perhaps that's what it's going to be in the future. There's going to be a lot more of those independent sort of groupings. Are we scared of that? Do we have to have the big picture as being the one that calls the tune? We want to avoid a fragmentation which sort of says everybody's in their own little unit. There's obviously risks in that. But is there a way in which we can begin to sort of meld together the larger picture within a smaller group that you're actually involved with. An interesting archaeological fact, which I didn't know, is that if when an archaeologist goes into one of the ancient Christian sites, say in Turkey or somewhere like that, they've discovered that, that there would be surprisingly, within a very small area, countless numbers of the remains of little churches most of them grouped around a big one. So, for instance, in a, in a cathedral city in England, you'd have, say, somewhere like Lincoln, for example, you'd have the main cathedral, but then you'd have all these little outposts. Now, in a sense, that seems nonsensical. They'd say, well, why bother with all those little churches when you've got a nice big church to go to? But in a sense, it shows that there's been, there's been a shift from those little communities sort of working where they all know one another and a friend of mine who's, who's studied this, he, he would claim, he says, once a community gets to more than 20, 25, it's time for that community to go and start another community. Because once you go beyond that, of course you can have larger communities, but you're into a different ball game. So if, if you are trying to sort of encourage this interaction between people who know one another... There's risks in it, of course there are. It could become introverted, it could become taken over by... It, it's not a fail-safe sort of way forward, but it's an interesting challenge to who are you on the larger level and who are you on the smaller level, and perhaps that is breaking down this zigzag journey that we're on, and we're, we're having to face those sort of questions in new ways, and where's the opportunities to actually do that? And I think that the monastic background, we can learn a lot by, by learning from both the mistakes as well as the successes of that long story. One of my observations of new monasticism is that the culture of it tends to be politically active, mm -hmm. politically progressive, engaged, on one hand, much more so than more mm -hmm. conservative church environments. Well, perhaps that's not fair. Perhaps there are conservative church environments who are politically active in other directions. But, it, yeah, there's a political, mm -hmm. um, progressive kind of energy there. But then also there's a sort of real religious orthodoxy, in fact, because it's really that movement in particular is very much drawing on lots of Christian tradition that tends to be, you know, mostly probably much older than, you know, the Protestant story. So it has this kind of orthodoxy, this balance between a sort of spine of tradition that seems to enable it to occupy a slightly more dangerous place in the world or a mm. posture that is welcoming of change, bravely engaging with it and wanting to see good new things happen rather than mm -hmm. be forever rehashing mm -hmm. the old things. 
I'm also interested in the moments that produce something like a religious, you know, Catholic religious order or something analogous. I imagine that often it's a time when there is some puzzle, some friction to be reacted mm -hmm. to or a possible solution to some kind of stuckness. And I think times of great change, times of great transition, when everything's up in the air and, you know, the structure of things and the future shape of things is all quite unknown, can be quite a generative time yeah. in terms of producing new groups saying, maybe we'll do it like this. Yeah. Shall we try it like this? Or yeah. what if we were all to commit to doing this or to not doing that? I'm wondering if you sense that going on at the moment within your realm. Oh, very much so. I mean, the, the words that come to my mind as listening to you describing this sort of particular focus is dynamic as opposed to static. So, I mean, there's, there's a tendency in all of us, I think, humanly speaking, to sort of like value a little bit of being static. We, we don't want to be constantly sort of change. On the other hand, if that takes over, it deadens. So you want the dynamism, but the dynamism focused on something that is real. So it, it's, is it focused on an internal, how do we preserve ourselves? Well, that is a dynamism, but it's not necessarily a productive dynamism. It's, it's one that sort of risks sort of going inwards. So it's, it's finding how, how do you maintain what is essential and, and, and keeps the focus, keeps the structure there. How do we encourage the dynamism and how do we keep it focused on something that is, is beyond ourselves? Are we prepared to continue to ask questions which don't just protect our own sense of self-security, but which open us up to, to that other, other presence? And I think that that is at the heart of what I believe the Christian journey is about, and I would want it to be that way. But it's easy saying that, it's, but it's, it's another matter actually living it through and negotiating it and encouraging one another to come on board and recognise those. And I think that perhaps one of the things that's missing very often is the opportunity to sit down and really listen to one another. And I don't mean just long listening, but, but have a dialogue like you and I are having now. There's a dynamic tension, which is good, because that can then help me to see better something that I'm missing because I'm listening to you and hopefully the other way around. And that doesn't always happen, because the big danger in groups, whether monastic or otherwise, is that it closes in on itself, becomes self-protective, mm. and, and in that sense becomes a straitjacket. So you, I wouldn't want to canonise, like, you know, aren't monastic groups great? Well, which ones are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the um, tensions that is notable to me that you've named it almost every time is gender. So when I think of Catholic religious orders, I mean, it's, it's, it's a question of Catholic hierarchy as well as in so many other kinds of churches. I assume you have to be a man to be, a, to be of the passionist order. Are there, are there religious orders that are all women? Are there religious orders that are mixed groups? I'm, I'm interested in those kinds of dynamics. Well, well, first of all, there are, there are women groups that would be passionist. There's one religious order very closely associated with those called the Cross and Passion Sisters, and they, they come out of the same stable. There's other religious orders of women that are also call themselves passionists, but they're more contemplative. They are nuns. They, they, like you distinguish between sisters and nuns, I know that's terminology, but the nuns would usually be the contemplative ones, and the, the sisters would be the ones that would be working in schools or hospitals or whatever. So yes, there are. But also, for instance, we've had a, a very successful retreat centre up in the northeast of England called Minstrakers. And 
Minstrakers wouldn't still be going if it hadn't become a mixed community as it has become now, that there's men and women living in the community. Some of them are married, some of them are religious, some of them are passionate, some of them are not. But that's, that's on a particular situation that I'm describing. Generally, it'll be a much bigger shift to see how this new monasticism, the new way of, of moving forward, in fact develops, perhaps internationally, so that there could be a much greater freedom as everybody doesn't have to necessarily live under the same roof to belong to a particular group, for instance. Mm. Yes, I think um, fluidity and flexibility yeah. is part of what is so attractive. Alternative structures to hold yeah. faithful life, I guess. The dilemma, of course, it brings is how do you keep the flexibility and the fluidity, but also encourage a continuity that isn't, isn't contradictory. Yeah. Uh, it comes back to the two, it's, 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 and it's a, it's a balance. Which makes me think of, you know, the sort of house church movement of um, yes. evangelical history, which yes. tended to be very short-lived. Yes, that'd be the... Yeah. Very sort of um, dominated by powerful men's yeah. voices. Everybody <laughs> crawls out of it, yeah. coming off better or worse. Yeah, sort of bruised. <laughs> yeah. Common Era is produced by Passionists in England and Wales. To find out more about us, look us up at passionists.org.uk. Join us for the next episode, where Nicholas and David will be talking about being challenged and changed by those on the margins of society. Music